It is, we must be ready for the second coming of Jesus Christ. This morning we're going to look at Luke chapter 17, verse 20 to 37. So you can go ahead and start turning in your copy of God's Word. Back in 1967, the country of Israel and the country of Egypt were at war. In Egypt, they suspected that the Israel army, Air Force, would try a surprise attack on the Egyptian Air Force bases. So early every morning, the Egyptian Air Force would fly around. They would take multiple trips to make sure that the air was clear of enemy aircraft. And each morning they would land the planes and the pilots would have a nice breakfast at about 7.45 in the morning. Well, one morning they did have a surprise attack and it happened precisely at 7.45 in the morning. As the pilots were sitting down to breakfast, the Israeli Air Force came into Egypt and began to bomb the Air Force bases. They had special bombs that would tear up the runway so that the airplanes could not take off. And then the Israeli Air Force then made two more trips, destroying many of the Egyptian warplanes, destroying 450 airplanes total and severely damaging 20 of the Egyptian Air Force bases. The Egyptian Air Force was not ready. They thought they were ready. They made preparations early in the mornings, but they were not ready. They did not suspect this attack to come at breakfast time. It seems that if they had been ready, it would have helped their situation. And it seems like readiness, being ready, is half of the battle. Our passage today speaks about how we should be ready for Christ's return. In Luke 17, verse 20, and to the end of the chapter, Jesus is talking about God's kingdom and his own reign as king of God's kingdom. And not only that, but his return to this world. He's looking deep into the future when he will return, his second coming. He doesn't give dates or signs to look for, But he does say that the end of the world will happen when he returns. And when he returns, God's kingdom will be visible to all people, whether they believe or not. It will be apparent. It will be unmistakable. And then he explains why we should be ready for his return. So as we think about being ready, let's look at Luke 17, starting in verse 20. You follow along as I read. Being asked by the Pharisees, When the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to his disciples, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, Look there. Or, look here, do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes 
and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, Where, Lord? He said to them, Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. The main purpose of this passage is this. It is, we must be ready for the second coming of Jesus Christ. It's that simple. We must be ready for the second coming of Jesus Christ. As we look at this passage, I have three points this morning that have multiple truths from this passage concerning God's kingdom and Christ's second coming. Just to put this in context of where we are in the book of Luke, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, and he's being followed by a crowd of disciples, of Pharisees who don't like him, and then other onlookers. These are people who are not disciples, but they're interested in what Jesus is saying. And all this way, he's teaching, he's healing, and he's also answering questions, as we see him doing in this passage. So let's look a little deeper. Point number one is the return of Christ will make God's invisible kingdom visible. It will go from invisible to visible. This is verse 20 to 24, and also verse 37, way at the end. The passage starts off with a question from the Pharisees. Luke summarizes it, saying that being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them. So the Pharisees want to know, when? When is this kingdom coming? Jesus has been talking about the kingdom of God, so they want to know when. Now, this is not a new idea. There are many mentions of the topic of the kingdom of God in the book of Luke, and we've looked at many of them. Back in chapter 1, the angel, when he came to Mary, said that Jesus' kingdom would never end. And Jesus, when he began his ministry, he was in one town and was going to another, and the people of the first town didn't want him to leave. But he said in Luke 4, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. In chapter 9, Jesus 
sends out his apostles, his disciples. He says, to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. Jesus also is involved in the same type of ministry. Before feeding the 5,000, it says that Jesus spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. And then at the end of chapter 9, Jesus speaks directly to the cost of following him by saying, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And then two verses later, Jesus says again, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Jesus compares the kingdom of God to a mustard seed that a man planted and it grew into a very large tree. He compares the kingdom of God to leaven or yeast that's mixed in with flour. And the whole lump, the whole thing is leavened or the whole thing is influenced by the yeast. In chapter 16, the chapter just previous to this, Jesus explained to the Pharisees that the law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached. So Jesus is bringing this proclamation of the kingdom of God. And we also see, interestingly, in the beginning of Acts, which was also written by Luke, the same writer of this gospel, it says that even as Jesus had died, he rose, and he was about to ascend into heaven. And they asked, Jesus, is this the time for your kingdom? Is your kingdom coming now? So we can see that the kingdom of God was important to Jesus. It was important to Luke because he writes so much about it. And it was important to the people of this time. The Pharisees want to know, when is his kingdom coming? The disciples are also interested. That's why Jesus addresses them in verse 22. And we see all the way over in Acts, they still don't quite get it. They're waiting for his kingdom to come. Because there was a big misconception at this time. The people of Israel understood the message of the Old Testament to mean that the Messiah, the Christ, would come and establish an earthly kingdom and overthrow the, the rulers, the Romans, or any other foreign control that was over Israel at the time. And then he would rule on that throne forever. So they understood the forever reign of the Messiah, of the Christ. They understood the deliverance that was to come, but they understood it in a physical sense, thinking his kingdom could be defined by a map, that you could draw a line around it, and there would be a beginning date. It must have been frustrating for many people in Jesus' time when they recognized that Jesus was not bringing the military overthrow of the Romans that they thought he would bring. They may have been disappointed that his kingdom was not coming in the way they had imagined. I think we can relate to that. How often are we disappointed that God does not work in the way that we hope or we think he should. It's a good reminder for us that we don't always understand what God is doing, but he is trustworthy. Just as they didn't understand what God was doing, but we see the bigger picture to know this was the best thing. If God had established a earthly kingdom at that time, his whole plan would have been different than what we see in the scriptures. 
So that brings us to the question then, how does Jesus understand the kingdom of God? Well, we see in verse 20 and 21, Jesus' response to these the questions of the Pharisees. He says, the kingdom of God is coming, excuse me, is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst, is in the midst of of you. So he's saying that the kingdom of God is not something that's seen. It's not something we can draw lines around on a map. But it is there. It does exist. So just recently, um, our family was blessed. I was blessed with a new niece. My brother and sister-in-law had a baby. Her name is Olivia. And they called her Olivia for several months before she was born. They knew they were having a girl, and they named her, and they they called her Olivia. So for a while, we heard of Olivia, but we could not see her. She was still in her mom's tummy. We couldn't interact with her or get to know her, but we knew she was there. And in a similar way, the kingdom of God at this point in Scripture and even for us, it is hidden from the human eye. It is hidden from vision. Jesus is saying that the kingdom of God is not new, but it is currently hidden from plain sight. That's why Jesus, but Jesus says that it's in the midst of you. One commentator says about this phrase, in the midst of you, that it means God's kingdom is already among you and you have not recognized it. So this is a condemnation on the Pharisees for not recognizing God's kingdom and that it's in their midst, that it's already there. Now, the kingdom of God, as Jesus is talking about it, as we see from Scripture, is any realm, is the realm that is ruled by Christ. So the kingdom of God is the realm ruled by Christ. Now, Christ is not a ruler over a certain area of land, but he is the ruler over those human hearts of people who believe. Those of us who are born again, when we believe in Jesus as our Savior, when we have heard the good news of Jesus and we believe, our hearts are put under the authority of Jesus. We are under the dominion of Christ. We are under his rule. He becomes our king. We are moved from the dominion or the kingdom of Satan, which is this world, into the kingdom of God under the rule of Christ. So that means the kingdom of God is made up of the members of the kingdom of God are those who have believed in Jesus as their Savior. And we live out this membership We live out this citizenship of the kingdom of God in the local church. That's why it's important for all Christians to be a part of a local church, to be covenanted together with other believers as we submit to the authority of Christ as our king. We are part of the kingdom of God when we are under the rule of Christ. And this is why it is not visible to everyone. We cannot define, there it is, but we can say, it is those who are ruled by Christ. 
Now, verse 22 tells us that uh, tells us that Jesus is speaking to the disciples. He's addressing them, and he says to them that they will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man. Now, when we take the that phrase in the context of the rest of this passage, the days of the Son of Man points to Christ's second coming, when Jesus comes again. The Son of Man is pointing to Jesus. Jesus uses this phrase to refer to himself. And it comes from the book of Daniel, in Daniel chapter 7, that speaks of one like the Son of Man, or like a Son of Man. And this Son of Man is going to come and going to rule as a king on an everlasting throne, or in an everlasting kingdom. So this king will rule forever, this pointing to Jesus. And Jesus refers to himself as that Son of Man. So the days of the Son of Man is when Jesus comes again to rule in the open, in a visible way. It's pointing to the second coming of Jesus. So when the disciples are looking forward to Jesus coming again, this is after he dies, he's resurrected, he ascends into heaven. And then at that point, the disciples want him to come back. Jesus, come Jesus, come again. They're looking forward to those days when Jesus will reign visibly and truly and fully. And we know by looking at verse 23 and 24 that some people will say, oh, there it is, or look here. There's going to be those who would would say that they have found it, but Jesus says, do not believe them. And verse 24 tells us why. Look at verse 24 with me. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be on his day. So this is very helpful for us to see. When lightning flashes, especially at night, it lights up the entire sky. There's no mistaking that the sky was lit. You can't argue that there was not any light. Even if you're viewing a tiny bit of the sky, you can see the light from the lightning. It's unmistakable. It is very visible. And Jesus says, in the same way, so will the Son of Man be in his day. This means that it will be unmistakable when Jesus returns. There won't be someone saying, look there. And there's an investigation to see, is this really or is it not? It will be unmistakable, just like a lightning flash. Now, the kingdom of God at this time was not visible to the Pharisees. They didn't understand what it meant. But it would one day and will one day be visible. And not only visible, but unmistakable. Now, notice verse 37 as well. It says, And they said to him, Where, Lord? And he said to them, Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. So in this passage, it's kind of like a, like a sandwich uh, of some ways. So Jesus says in verse 24, For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. So it will be unmistakable when Jesus comes. 
And at the end, he gets, he says a very similar thing in verse 37. They're asking him, where will, will people be taken uh, when, they're, when they're taken? Where, Lord? And he says to them, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. This is probably a, uh, a saying that, that was at that time, it seems very odd to us to say it in this way. But the truth of this phrase is that the, if you see a group of vultures, what does that mean? It's obvious that something died. Vultures don't just hang out for conversation. They don't gather around anything except for food. So if you see a group of vultures, it is obvious that something died. Now this is not saying that that something's going to die. What it's saying is it will be obvious when and where God's kingdom is, when Christ returns. So when Jesus comes, again, it will be obvious, it will be unmistakable that this is God's kingdom. Now a kingdom, this God's kingdom, is made up of human hearts. It's collected in groups of of believers called God's church. The kingdom that's invisible to the world will be unmistakable when Christ returns. It will be obvious. We cannot miss it. And no one will be able to miss it. Now we don't know when this will happen, but we do know that it will happen. And we must be ready when it does. Now, before we get too far ahead of ourselves, we don't want to get ahead of ourselves in this passage. And Jesus did not want to get ahead of his mission and his plan either. That's why we get to point number two, which comes from verse 25. Look at verse 25. Only one verse for point number two. It says, But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. So point number two Christ's death was planned and necessary. Christ's death was planned and necessary. Christ's death was planned and necessary. Jesus is continuing to talk to his disciples in verse 25. He just told them it will be unmistakable when he returns, but first. He says, but first. This is a planned event. This is not a detour of God's plan. This is not a speed bump in the way or something uncalculated. God, the Father, and the Son have been planning this from the beginning of time, that Jesus would come and die on the cross for the sin of his people. And he was doing that as a display of God's love. So it says, But first, he must suffer many things. This planned event is for suffering. And Jesus did suffer many things. It's good and important for us to review what Jesus went through when he suffered many things. He suffered the betrayal by one of his apostles, by Judas. He suffered with his close friend, the apostle Peter, denying that he even knew Jesus. He says, no, three times he says, I, didn't, I don't know him at all. He would be arrested without cause. 
tried in a, a junk trial where crimes had to be made up and manufactured. He would be mocked, spat upon, blindfolded and hit, and mocked more, beaten almost to the point of death, and then hung on a cross, attached to a piece of wood with nails going through his body. Again, killed as a criminal, even though he didn't deserve it. And the greatest suffering was what we see from Isaiah 53. It says, The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Iniquity is sin. God's anger at and punishment for the sin of his people was put on Jesus. The ultimate suffering. The many things is our sin, is your sin. That is what Jesus suffered under. And he knew, but first, he must do it. It was planned, and it was necessary. This verse also says that Jesus was rejected by this generation. And we may wonder, what does this generation include? Who does that include? Well, it definitely includes the Pharisees and the religious leaders and the people of Israel who condemned Jesus to die, who brought him before Pilate and demanded that he be killed. We see in the early parts of Acts where Peter multiple times calls out the men of Jerusalem saying that Jesus' blood is on their hands, that they called for the death of Jesus by the Romans. And we can also understand this generation in a more broad sense as well. To include everyone who does not believe in Jesus as Savior. Everyone who does not believe that Jesus is sent by God and is King of God's kingdom. So with this broad understanding, this generation includes people alive today. All of those people who hear of Jesus and reject him. In fact, we all start out from a position of rejecting Jesus. All Christians at one point were opposed to Christ. It was the work of God through the Holy Spirit to soften our hearts, to open our eyes to see the truth that Jesus really is the Messiah. And then allowing us to enter into God's kingdom as citizens, saving us from our sin and forgiving us, bringing us into God's kingdom. So all of us started at rejecting, as rejecting Jesus. So if you're listening to me speak now and you're not a believer, if you're not a Christian, you are rejecting Jesus. You're part of this generation that is rejecting him. This might sound shocking to you, but it is true according to what we read in the Bible. If Jesus returned at this moment, you would be found on the side of those who reject him. You would be counted among the citizens of the kingdom of Satan, not the kingdom of God. So friends, respond today. I urge you to take action. Repent of your sin. It means to confess, to admit that you're a sinner and turn to God 
for forgiveness from him. Believe that Jesus is the Savior and submit to him as Lord and as King. Now, we should notice here that even before Jesus arrived in Jerusalem to be killed, Jesus is looking forward to his second coming, the final unmistakable revealing of the kingdom of God. So Christians, brothers and sisters, we should take on that same type of thinking that Christ had, that we would be looking forward to his second coming, that we would be mindful of it, seeing through the suffering that we experience and we know will come our way to the glorious thought of seeing with our own eyes and experiencing in fullness the kingdom of God at the coming of Christ. His suffering was great, but his glory will be infinitely greater. And we as Christians should be looking forward to that time, being mindful of it. It should be on our mind just as as it was on Jesus' mind. We suffer in this life. We can expect difficulty in this life as we follow Jesus. But we can look forward to his second coming, knowing that as he comes, he will bring his kingdom. Now we saw in point number one that there will be a time when God's kingdom is unmistakable, that we will know that it is God's kingdom. And that time is when Jesus returns. And in point number three, Jesus talks about, uh, in the verses associated with it, verse 27 to 35, Jesus talks about what will happen when he returns. Point number three is this. Christ's return means death for the wicked and life for believers. Christ's return means death for the wicked and life for believers. Christ's return means death for the wicked and life for believers. Let's look at verse 26. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out of Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. So here Jesus gives two illustrations from the Old Testament of what it will be like when he returns again. We see again the days of the Son of Man. This points to Jesus' second coming. And also in verse 30 where it says, On the day when the Son of Man is revealed. That again points to 
his second coming. So these two illustrations that Jesus gives, one is Noah and the flood. The other is Lot and the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. In both cases, there are those who are set apart by God. Noah and his family, Lot and his family. And then there are the many, all the people, and they are oblivious to what's going on. They continue to live their lives as normal, eating, drinking, marrying, buying, selling, planting, building. Now these are not wicked activities. But when the end is coming, who cares about planting a field? It's a waste to build a house if it's going to be swallowed up by fire or by water very soon. The, the many, the majority of the people in each case are oblivious. They do not see the destruction that's coming. And we see from how Jesus speaks of them, he says that they are destroyed, and they're destroyed because of their wickedness. Again, it's not their, the actions, specific actions, that makes them wicked, the eating and drinking or buying and selling and all those things. They're not inherently bad, They're wicked because their actions are concerned with their own life, their own things. They have been warned about God's coming wrath and they have ignored it. They have carried on as if nothing will happen. Jesus says in verse 32, remember Lot's wife. We remember Lot's wife by looking at Genesis 19 verse 26. It says, but Lot's wife behind him looked back and became a pillar of salt. So we remember her as a warning, a warning to us that the desire for this life leads to destruction and to disaster. When we desire this life, it will lead to disaster and destruction. That's why Jesus says in verse 33, He helps us understand why we should remember Lot's wife. He says that whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. It's helpful if you underline in your Bible to underline verse 33. Jesus is saying, if we seek to preserve our life, Lot's wife wanted to preserve her life. She looked back because she longed to go back. She wanted that life, and she lost her life. Jesus is saying we should look forward. We should not look back to this life or desire this life. The people in the days of Noah and of Lot, they were destroyed because they were seeking to preserve their life. They wanted to build their little kingdoms for themselves. They wanted to eat and to drink, enjoy all the good things of life, to marry, to buy, to sell, to plant, to build. They wanted to build a kingdom for themselves. But Jesus, he is the one and true king. He should be the king of our hearts, not the things that we build on earth, not the things that we can collect here or we can build for ourselves. So 
Do you long and ache for the things of this world? Do you wish you had a higher salary or maybe newer clothes? Or maybe you long to own your own house because then you would make it. Then you would be something. Do you work and work and work so that you can buy things to impress others? What about your mental energy? How much of your thinking do you spend on the things of this world? Are you trying to make this life work? Do you work everything out in your mind of how you can piece together your life with eating healthy and exercising and balancing friends and family and making sure that your career is advancing such that you can build into this life, make this life work? Well, if so, then it's possible that you are concerned with this life. You are seeking to preserve this life and not willing to give it up for the sake of Christ, to give it up to be under his authority and under his rule. Just like Lot's wife, she wanted what she was leaving behind. And we see that that desire, the desire to preserve her life, led to destruction. Now we see in verse 34, Jesus says, I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed, one will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together, one will be taken and the other left. This is where we see that there is life for the believers. This points to what is called the rapture, where Jesus takes out of the world to remove from destruction those who are his. Just as he took out Noah and put him in the ark, he took out Lot and kept him from the destruction of Sodom. He rescued him out. He carried him out of the city and basically shoved him and said, get out, go. That's what Jesus, it appears in verse 34 and 35, is committing to do for us. That when this destruction comes, that we should be ready for, God will take out his own. There will be some there. Uh, it says two in one bed. One will be taken, the other left. One, two people are working. One is taken. The other is left. God will determine. God knows who are his, whose are his, and he will take them out. Now, the Bible does not say that God is going to remove us from suffering. In fact, the Bible is very clear that God's people will face suffering because we follow Jesus. We follow a Savior who suffered on the cross, and we follow in the same path as him. We suffer because he, we are following him and he suffered. Now, but we do know that God will remove us from the destruction, that is the death that is reserved for the wicked. So when Jesus returns, it will mean death for the wicked. Those who are preserving this life will lose it. But those who are giving up this life to be in the kingdom of God, they will save it. God will save them. So the big application for today is, are you ready for Christ's return? We must be ready for Jesus to return. So friends, if you're not a Christian, again, 
Leave behind this world. It is not worth holding on to. It will not work the way you want it to work. And enter into the kingdom of God by repenting of your sin and believing in Jesus, who died on the cross, rose from the dead, is now seated in heaven with God, and will one day return. And we don't know when that is. It could be tomorrow. It could be today. So believe in Jesus as your Savior. Submit to Him as your King. And when Jesus returns, then you will be gathered with Him when He brings His people together. Because when Jesus comes, there will no no longer be an opportunity to repent. When God's kingdom is visible at Jesus' return, the door will be shut for those to enter His kingdom. The way will be blocked. At that point, the eternity for every soul is sealed. Those who are in the kingdom of God will remain. Those who are not will be sent to hell for eternal torment. Please take this serious. This is the most serious subject ever in the whole world. We must be ready for Christ's return. Now for those of us who are Christians, our responsibility is to get ready for Christ's return by making His kingdom visible to others. We do this by living a life that is marked as citizens of the kingdom of God. By living as citizens of the kingdom of God. Here in Shanghai, there's a lot of opportunity to play the foreigner guessing game. I don't have a good name for this game. Maybe someone can help me. But it's the game where you see someone that you know is not from Shanghai, and you guess... I wonder where they're from. I wonder where their hometown is. Maybe based on their name, or the way they look, or the way they dress, or the way they speak. Maybe some mannerisms. Trying to guess, where is their hometown? What, where might their hometown be? Now, as Christians, we want people to see us and notice the way we speak, our mannerisms, the way we carry ourselves, all the things we do should mark us as citizens of the kingdom of God. We want people to notice not our home country where you can point to on a map, there it is, but we want people to notice that we are different because we are citizens of the kingdom of God. We are witnesses for this kingdom. We have seen it. God has allowed us to see his kingdom and we have experienced it. And so that we are called to be witnesses to the rest of the world, to live out the kingdom of God. We do this, a big part of how we do this is being a part of a church, as I mentioned earlier. To become a member if you're not a member of a church. Members, for us, we should be reminded of our covenant. Our covenant is there to help us recognize and remember how to live our lives as members of God's kingdom. So read through the covenant. It's printed in the member's directory at the very front. If you don't have a copy of the member directory, reach out to Evelyn or to me. We can try to get one to you. But review the covenant 
and prayerfully consider, how can I live this out? How does my life need to look to live this out as I have committed to do? And another way that we live this out, that we make God's kingdom visible to the world, is by getting to know our king. Jesus is not an impersonal or far-off king. No, he's come near, and he's drawing near to us even now through his spirit. We know him by reading his words, by meditating on them and filling our minds with them. Now, we still need to live our lives. We're still going to do the things that are listed in these verses of eating and drinking, marrying, planting, building. But we should not do this with our heads down, consumed with our work, trying to make our lives work out even, or building our own kingdoms. But we should do it with our heads up, watching for the coming of our King and bearing witness to His coming to those people around us. I recommend reading the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter speaks directly to this point of living as a member of God's kingdom in a foreign land. We can all relate to this and all benefit by reading and studying 1 Peter. There are five chapters of 1 Peter. Read one chapter every day this week during the work week and prayerfully meditate on the meaning and ask God to help you apply what's there to your life. Now, we cannot be like the Egyptian Air Force, not being ready for the attack as they were. You know now. You know the end is coming. You know that Jesus is coming again and that we must be ready. The mindset of being in the world but being ready for Christ's return reminds me of Nehemiah chapter 4. In Nehemiah 4, there's only a few people living in Jerusalem, but they're working to rebuild the city wall. However, there's a threat from the outside. Enemies are potentially going to come and try to disrupt, attack, so that they cannot build the wall. So Nehemiah records their building like this. He says, Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped to his side while he built. So we see that they have the work in one hand and the weapon in the other. Or the builder has the sword strapped to his side. So we see in our case of having this dual mind, this dual task of living, working, but keeping watch. This is not the first time that God's people have been called to such a mindset. In Nehemiah's case, they were getting ready for war. They were ready for battle. In our case, we were getting ready for the arrival of our king. But we must be ready. Let's be ready. Let's pray. Jesus, our king, we look forward to your coming in glory to reveal your kingdom to all the earth. Forgive us for busying ourselves with life and forgetting you as we so easily and often do. Help us to remember to be warned by Lot's wife. And please keep us 
from desiring this life and help us to desire you. God, we ask that we would lose our life, that we might keep it in you. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Lord, Savior, and King. Amen.